You know, worship's about more than just the activity. If worship was just about what we do, then actually worship would be really easy. We would stick to the rules God gives us. We would do this, we'd do that, follow up with that, and we'd be sorted. You know, God told the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament how to worship him. He gave them a list of instructions of things he wanted them to do. He gave them rules and regulations, very specific ones. But you see, worship's got to be about more than just the rules. Because when it's just the rules, it becomes a ritual. And what happened is is Israel's heart began to wander from God. And when that happened, the ritual meant nothing. If you just want to turn to Isaiah um, 1, 11 to 17. I'm going to be using the message here. I apologize for that. I'm indulging in the message just for this one verse or this one passage because it sounded so vivid. See, when Israel's hearts begin to wander, God was no longer pleased with the worship they were getting, that they were giving to him. It says this, start in verse 11. Why this frenzy of sacrifices? God's asking. Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt offerings, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of bull from, from, of blood from bulls, lambs and goats? When you come before me, whenever, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go on right sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud you pray, I'll not be listening. Do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home. Wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of evil doings. So I don't have to look at them anymore. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go out and bat for the defenseless. Now we're going to come back to a lot of the themes in this passage as we go on. But I want to point something out right at the start. At this point, Israel were worshipping God. The fact of whether worship was taking place or not was not the question. They were making many prayers. They were sacrificing There was meeting after meeting after meeting. They were doing a good job of doing church. They were doing what God had told them to do. They were given the sacrifices that God had asked for. But God is not happy. Because this isn't what God is after. There is something more than the ritual of worship that God is looking for from us. They were doing that. But they were also going on sinning. They'd missed the point. 
See, here's the point. All, not all worship is pleasing or acceptable to God. The fact that a worship service occurs is not enough. It's not. Not even a good one. It's entirely possible to do all of these things really well and still be getting worship wrong. So today I am going to do a how-to guide of how to get it wrong. If you want a title, what not to do in worship. And I am, for the majority of this message, going to focus on some negatives. Now the reason for doing that is so that we can see the heart of what is behind the positive. When we know what not to do, and the reasons not to do it, then it's clearer what God is looking for. Now I want you to understand my heart on this. I'm going to be negative, and I might be harsh. I'm not doing that because I want to be negative and harsh. I'm doing that because I believe this is a really important subject. I think worship is so important to the heart of God that I just want to cut through some things straight through. So if you give me permission, I'm going to be negative and harsh. Is that okay? Okay. Now, if you want to turn to Malachi um, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, and we're going to start with this passage. See, after so long in Malachi, it appears that Israel finally gets to the point in its history where it's finally learned its lesson about idolatry. Never again from this point in history does Israel go and seek out foreign gods. Unfortunately, what they do do is they do what religion tends to do, or what churches have done time and again, and then they find religion. Everything to do with God at this point in their history has become a chore. It's become a routine. They were doing the minimum amount of effort that was required for God. And they weren't even too bothered about doing that. In fact, they weren't keen on worshipping God at all. We hear from God, and God is not happy at all. Verses 6 to 14. A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honour? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Or priests who despise my name. But you say, how have, you do, how have we despised your name? By polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. I will now entreat for the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. Or that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle my fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Far from the rising sun to its setting place, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or what is lame or sick and you bring it as an offering. 
Shall I accept this from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to God what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. See, what Israel's doing is they're sick of worshipping God. Sick of it. They're beginning to find it weary. And as a result, they're not putting the effort in. See, in spite of the specific instructions of God, that sacrifices should represent the first and the best of what the people have, the priests were offering animals that were crippled, diseased, and ritually unfit for sacrifice. Now today we can look back and we think, well, that's, that's just crazy. It's not on. But I wonder, do we give God the best of us? No, we don't sacrifice animals at church now. Thank God. Imagine being a deacon and having to deal with that at the end of a meeting. No, we don't do that. But do we come to church and do we give God something that really isn't good enough? Whether it's now enthusiasm for his house, in the way we approach our worship, or even in how much concentration we give God. You know, verse 8 it says, give that to your governor. Would he accept that? You know, we could update that today to give that, try that on your boss. When we come to worship, does God get the best? Are we consistently late for church? Try that with your boss. Do you come to church tired, unready, and wearing your oldest scruffy clothes? Try that with your boss. Do you sit and space out while everybody else gets involved? Try that with your boss. Actually, I think I've tried all these things at work. It doesn't go down well. Guess what? Not all worship pleases God. See, not only is half-hearted worship pointless, it actually annoys God. Why? Because God understands how important worship actually is. See, Israel had started to disdain their acts of worship. It was a chore. Something they didn't really want to do. I wonder, how often on a Sunday have you felt like that? See, God is so displeased with the quality of their sacrifices that he said it's better to close the doors of the temple that no sacrifices can be lit than go through this mockery that God won't accept. The fact that a service, sorry, the fact that a sacrifice costs you nothing, it's not a sacrifice. You know, we talked about the sacrifice of prayers last week. All worship requires sacrifice. See, that's how God feels. He would rather we shut the doors to the church than give God second best. He'd rather they didn't bother. What weariness this is, is what he says they've seen. That was their attitude. Let me tell you, with church, the at least I've turned up argument doesn't work. If your body's here and your mind is somewhere else, God's not looking for that. See, church attendance on its own is not a virtue. See, if you're in that place this morning or you've been in that place, warning bells should be going off right now. Have you got sick of worshipping God? 
Has it become a chore? God would rather you didn't bother. Listen, if you are half-hearted and sick of it and wishing you were still in bed, then shocking as it is to say, you're better off in bed. At least then you're not wasting God's time. By the way, I'm not suggesting that if you're struggling, stay in bed. That's not going to help you. But it's certainly better than keeping up a pretense. No, instead we need to deal with it. Stop. Focus. Who is this God? Who is this wonderful Jesus? Who is he that is beautiful beyond description? He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And when we lose sight of that, yes, worship gets still. But if you keep that in mind, worship can never be dull. Because he is amazing. He is wonderful. He is the perpetual novelty. The more you discover about God, the more there is still to find out. We can never know God completely. We can never get to the point where we say we know enough. The further on your walk you go, the bigger he gets. When we lose sight of him, our worship just becomes routine. See, the focus of our worship is to minister to God. And when we're sloppy in our worship, it's God that we're shortchanging. No wonder in Malachi the language is so strong. Am I saying that every time we come together in church, we need to be lost in, lost in adoration every single second of the meeting? No. That every week you've got to cry because you're so amazed by the presence of God and how wonderful he is. No. I don't know anybody who feels that all the time. What we are is we're real with God. We give him our best, even on those days that our best isn't very good. Some days I come to church and my best isn't up to much at all. But I give that. You see, we're here to worship Jesus, the King of Kings. We don't come here to fake a superficial experience. We don't come here to feel bad if we've not fallen over. Or we haven't seen the glory cloud, which I've never seen. No, when we come here to worship, we do the best we can. Even if the best we can isn't that much. What he requires from us is that whatever we do, we mean it. We mean it. How many times have we sang songs that we're just not meaning right now? If you've let your worship become shoddy, and sloppy, then you need to step back, reassess, and focus on God. Otherwise, you're actually just wasting your time. See, if we don't mean it, he don't want it. Simple as that. We've got to mean it. If you want to turn ahead, we're going to look at Amos 5, uh, verses 21 to 24. You see, we can be very focused in our worship. We can be very passionate about our worship. We can mean everything we're singing to God. We can be 100% committed. We can sing those words, you are beautiful beyond description, and feel every single word. And even then, we can miss it. Amos 5, 21 to 24. The Lord says, I completely hate your feasts. I cannot stand 
your religious meetings. If you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. You bring your best fellowship offerings of fattened cattle, and I'll ignore them. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps. But instead, let justice flow like a river. And let goodness flow like a stream that never stops. See here, Israel are bringing their very best. There's no blind cows here. No, no, these are the best fatted cows. So at this point, Israel are bringing their best. They're completely focused on God. But God says he'll ignore it. How does that work? You see, it's not that God is just overly picky. No, with Malachi, they're giving God their best, but their hearts were wrong. And it is a heart issue. With Malachi, they weren't giving their best, but here it is an issue of their heart. You see, at this time in history, we're beginning to see the rise of the Roman Empire. We also see the rise of the Greek Empire, both of them very powerful at this time. And right throughout the nations of the world, there was a lot of cruelty and injustice by these empires. See, God had planted Israel to be a light to the nations. He'd said to Abraham that the world would be saved through his descendants. That Israel was to be God's shining light in the world. Israel was supposed to show the rest of the world what God's people should look like. But here, we see them lost in the process of worship. They're so focused on their religious feasts, so focused on their meetings, so focused on their particular meeting times, that they show no concern for what is going on in the world around them. Now, if I was to be particularly harsh, I'd say Israel today is doing a similar thing. So focused on keeping the Shabbat, you treat the Palestinians horribly. Now, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. But you see, when the world looks today at who is God's shining light, where does it they look? It's us. It's the church. We are the light of the world. I wonder how much are we really shining? Or have we too gone down this same path? Are we so concerned with getting our meetings right, spending all of our energy enjoying our time with God, not just in church, but our personal time with God, that we miss the lost, the least, and the broken. You see, they were so caught up with going on with how they were relating to God as individuals and as a community, they weren't looking outside. You see, God is more concerned with justice than he is with our meetings. See, not only was God not impressed with their meetings, he said he hates them. He won't accept what they're doing, even though what they're doing is good. You see, on the surface, they seem to be doing it so well. And God is saying, guys, you don't get it. How can I be happy with your worship when you ignore the needs in your society? See, good songs don't necessarily mean good worship. Neither do good meetings. Neither does going home on a high. Now, I don't want to undermine these things. But if our lives don't match up to it, it doesn't mean squat. He values your life more than he values your singing. He values your love for justice more than any words you can give him. 
We cannot worship God with one hand in the air and neglect the needs of people who are suffering with the other. Now this is a real challenge. This is a challenge to me. What do we do to stand up for those who are hurting as a church and as individuals? The fact that we come to church does not impress God. The fact that we have good meetings does not impress him, not on its own. Israel was diligently observing the feasts, all of the ceremonies, knowing that God, not knowing that God was despising these things because their hearts were hard. Now please understand me. We can't worship, have good worship, without a concern for justice, the poor and the oppressed. And please understand, we're not all Mother Teresa. I get that. We're simply not. We all get it wrong sometimes when it comes to the broken and the poor. I'm sure we have all walked past somebody on the street who's asking for money. All of us. And I'm not saying that every time you get it wrong, God won't accept your worship. I'm not saying that God is only listening to you if you get involved in the food bank. See, what that's doing is making our faith all about works, and that's not right. I'm not trying to raise the standard to impossible. What I'm asking is, it's a question of where is your heart? Is it on the things you care about, or is it on the things God cares about? The question isn't, are you out there changing the world, but do you have a heart after God's own? See, he is a God of love. How can we be a true worshiper and not be loving? Jesus was moved by compassion for people. How can we be true worshippers of Jesus if we don't feel and show compassion? See, real worship has to be intertwined with justice and goodness. It takes us right back to Isaiah. How could God accept their worship if they were sinning? When they were not doing good. God wants our worship. He wants to forgive. But our lives have to match up. See, hands lifted high before God should not be hands that hate your wife. The voice that praises God should not be the voice that curses. Knees that bow before the Father should not be crawling home when you're plastered. We can't compartmentalize our lives like this. You know, we can't keep our lives so separate and isolated. I don't know about you, but sometimes we manage to make it so easy. Our church life here, our work life here, and our social life here. It's a very strange experience when someone from work comes to church. Because these two worlds suddenly collide. Because what we do is we separate and isolate different parts of our lives, and it doesn't work. We are who we are all the time. In 1 John uh, verses 2.11 it says, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, you cannot hate from the same heart that you adore God with. Jesus says, if you hate, you're a murderer, not a worshipper. It seems so obvious, but we can't compartmentalize. Is that a word? We can't compartmentalize our lives like that. We can't separate parts of who we are like that. And you see, the thing is, Israel probably didn't even notice they were doing it. 
They didn't notice they were missing it. And I suspect for the most part in our lives when we do it, we don't notice. Now a lot of this focus has been Old Testament, I understand that. What does the New Testament say about worship? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. True and proper worship involves more than just our voices. It involves everything about us. Everything we are. What is it to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? We give him everything. We sang that song. I surrender all. Everything. We don't give God our second best. We give him the very best of who we are. We don't shortchange God on time. He gets the best of our time. The best of our energy. Not just the dregs that are left at the end of the week. We do not come before God with shoddy, sloppy worship. We don't praise him with one hand and ignore the things that are important to him with the other. We don't forget the things he cares about. See, worship is not something to take lightly. Worship is of huge importance. Just think for a moment how big a privilege it is that we get to worship God. We get to adore intimately the creator of everything. See, worship is discovering and declaring how magnificent, how amazing, how wonderful God is. It's not just going to church and singing. It's part of every part of your life, every breath you take. How can we be the kind of worshiper that God is looking for? Let's look at that. If we go back to that passage in Malachi, Malachi 1.6, it says, Isn't it true? That a father honors his father and a worker his master. So if I'm your father, where's the honor? If I'm your master, where's the respect? God of the angel armies is calling you to the carpet. You priests despise me. You say not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship. You know, we have a very emotional connection to our times of worship. But worship takes more than just emotion. God wants some reverence. You know, the translation puts it like this. God of the angel armies is calling you to the carpet. He wants us to bow. I wonder, when was the last time you were on your knees before God? Not out of a sense of emotion. Not because you were so overwhelmed by his presence, but simply out of reverence to Almighty God. I wonder. See, when we praise God, we can come to him very easily as our friend. Very easily. We delight in what Jesus has done for us. That the veil has finally been torn down. That we can say, I am a friend of God. But you know what? With worship, there's a reverence that's also needed. Worship is a passionate response to his glory. It's an acknowledgement that he is all-powerful, almighty God. 
and we're not. You know, in many ways, worship is closer to repentance than it is to praise. You know, David Pawson put it like this. He's God Almighty. He's not God Almighty. And sometimes we forget that. You see, when we forget the reverence, I believe worship does become a chore. It becomes less important. There's a great example of how the way people in India talk to their fathers. In India, the word for father is pitha. I've probably pronounced it wrong, by the way, but pitha. But you don't call your father pitha. What you do is you call him pitha G. What it's doing is it's using this term for the nearest and dearest, and it's adding a bit of respect because G means sir. So when you talk to your father in India, you're not calling him daddy, you're calling him daddy, sir. It's a mark of respect and reverence, but it's also intimate. See, that's what God is saying here in Malachi. You call me dad, where's the sir? Now, I'm not saying Jesus is not our friend. He's our very best friend. He's the best friend you could ever have. But sometimes I think we get too familiar with God. And you know what familiarity breeds? Contempt. When you get too casual, you start to contempt worship. Not treated right. Yes, he's our friend. He's also our king. He's also our God. And I dare say, even some worship songs lose this reverence. Don't misunderstand me. God is accessible to all of us. We can all have a close and intimate relationship with God. That's the idea. But when we come into worship, there must be reverence for God. God says, if I'm your master, where's the respect? Sometimes I wonder, where's the respect? There has to be closeness. He's our heavenly father. But he's also the king of the universe. He's daddy, sir. Sometimes I wonder how some people can make a decision to follow Jesus and then treat it so casually afterwards. No real sense of excitement. No real sense of wonder. No real sense of awe about God and who he is. And I can't help but wonder, is that what we model to them? Is that what we're showing them, what a worshipper is? See, I don't want to be that kind of worshipper. I want to be the sort of worshipper that God is seeking. I want to be the sort of worshipper that makes God smile. How do we become a worshipper that makes God smile? Three points. Point one, give your best. Give your best. John 4, verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers that God is seeking. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
Do I really understand what it is to worship the living God? When God seeks me out, will he find a true worshiper? In spirit and in truth. Now, there's a lot of ways you can read this. I'm just going to take one. So don't say this is the definitive version. The word here for spirit is pneuma. This word means wind, breathe, breath. See, the word we use for spirit is the word the people of the time use for breath. And there was a reason for this. When you breathe in and out, there was a connection. We know that when you breathe in and out, you're alive. When you stop breathing in and out, it's stopped. So there was this connection with the words that there's something in us that's connected to our very breath. So the same word for spirit is breath. So what is it to worship in spirit? Yes, it's connecting with God. But also worship is a part of our very breath. Just as we breathe, we should be worshiping. It's just a natural part of who we are. We don't, we don't even think about breathing. My gran currently has, um, she's got Alzheimer's. And she had a really horrible fit because it's beginning to spread into the yeah, subconscious parts of the brain. So she forgot how to breathe. That's something we don't normally even think about. But it's something we do. Worship should be as natural as breathing. Natural as breathing to us. Just as we breathe, we worship. Every breath is for him. Every part of who we are is committed to him. See, worship is part of us, just as our breathing is part of us. We don't even have to think about it. And the same is in truth. The word in truth is, I am not going to spell, so pronounce this right, is aletheia. And it doesn't just mean truth as in spoken truth. But it means truth as in ultimate reality. Worship should be part of of our ultimate reality. Part of everything that we believe and are. It fits into every part of our life. We don't just have worship for church and then go out the door and do something else. That's not your ultimate reality. Your ultimate reality covers every part of who you are. If we worship in church and then we go out and do things that are against those words we've been saying to God, our lives don't match up. That is not worshipping in truth. To worship in spirit and in truth is to have worship as a part of who we are, part of our very breath. Every single part of our lives match up to it. We don't have to go to the temple to do it because it's part of who we are, part of our breath, part of our reality. See, in some mysterious way, I really believe our worship ministers to God. Ezekiel 44.15 But the priests, the Levites, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray, they shall come near to me and minister to me. Minister to me. See, we read that the primary function of these Levitical priests was to come near to God and to minister to God. It's actually his words, come near to me and minister to me. So many images in Scripture of waiting upon God, attending to God, appeasing His wrath. See, to appease means to bring rest, to settle, 
to console. If we bring this back to worship, is it possible that as the bride of Christ, when we offer true worship to God, that it brings him rest? That on some level, it blesses God. That God loves it. See, worship is not for us. And while I believe in God has no needs outside of himself, the scriptures seem to indicate that God is affected by our worship. What an honor. Just think about that for a moment. Your little song, your little offering has an effect on Almighty God. That blows my mind. I'll tell you what, if nothing else makes me want to be a worshiper, knowing that it affects God, that it blesses Him. If our worship ministers to God and in some way brings Him rest or blesses Him, doesn't that make you desperate? Desperate to be a true worshiper of God. See, what God wants is for us to give Him our best as an act of worship. You know, one of the greatest missionaries ever sent out from the UK was a guy called C.T. Studd. And this was a man who understood sacrifice. He was one, um, he was an affluent, successful man. He was part of the England cricket team and he was about to become captain. He'd been left a huge amount of money in an inheritance. In the natural, this guy, he had everything going for him. So in the natural, he did something that made no sense at all. He gave it all up, got rid of all his money, everything he was doing, and followed God's call to China. He knew God wanted him in China, so he gave away his inheritance, set aside the life he built, and went. His life is so inspiring. It's worth reading something about his life sometime. Just, this is some quotes from this guy. This is a guy who understood giving God your best. Funds are low again. Hallelujah. That means God trusts me and is willing to leave his reputation in my hands. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. This guy... Gave God his very best. He committed everything to him. Now, I'm not suggesting you've got to go out there and give everything up. But let me ask you. Do you give the God the very best of what you've got? You know, once at work um, at, at God TV, we had a Christian dance group come on to a children's program I was working on. Now, I don't know. Those who know me probably know. I don't like Christian dance very much. But let's set that aside. They were on the air performing. And they weren't very good, to be honest. They weren't the best. Actually, no, it wasn't that they weren't very good. It's just they didn't seem that into what they were doing. They just didn't seem to be putting the effort in. And I'll never forget one of the non-Christian members of staff coming up to me and saying, you can tell they're doing this for God and not money because they're not putting a lot of effort in. I've never forgot that. If they were doing it for the money, they'd have put in a bit more work. I wonder, in some ways, is that true of us? Do we give God our best? If this was work, would you wander in late? Shabby. 
sleepy and not bothered. <laughs> Maybe some mornings. <laughs> but generally, I think, no, we wouldn't. Why? We get paid. We get paid to be there. I wonder, at work, would you be habitually late? Would you sit and daydream during a briefing? You know, it's not a sin to be late for church, but it's really rude, I think. It's really rude. Because to me, what it says is, God goes below my schedule. God goes below my timing. Now, I'm not saying there's not, uh, you know, circumstances and there's not times. There's always exceptions. Just chances are it's not you. You know, you're never late for somewhere you want to be. I'm never late for the cinema. But we don't go late to the football. You're never late for somewhere that you actually want to be. Point two. That was a long point one. Rest are shorter. Point two. Match it up with your walk. Match it up with your walk. See, with the book of Amos, it wasn't just a question of passion. It wasn't a question of giving your best. They were given their very best offerings, but God rejects it. Why? Because their act of worship didn't match up with their lives. They were so busy playing church that they missed what was breaking God's heart on the earth. See, church is not the point of being a Christian. No. The point is we follow Jesus. The point is, if he cares about something, we care. Jesus cares for the least, the lost, and the broken. How much are they a part of your Christian experience? But more than that, when we sing, I surrender all, do you mean it? Does God own every part of who you are? Do you give him your Sunday best? And then forget the rest. Do you sing words on a Sunday that serve as a guide for how you live your life? Or do we sing, unless you build this house, we're building it in vain. Then go off and try and do it yourself the rest of the week. Because that's kind of like lying to God. Just because it's a lie with a melody to it. Doesn't make it any better. The verse we read at the start tells us what God is looking for. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. We worship with our voice. We worship with our hearts. We worship with our schedule. We worship with our budget. A lot of Christians are saved and their wallets still aren't redeemed. We align our hearts with God and we care about the things God cares about. A true worshiper has no problem in getting a heart for the lost because God's got a heart for the lost. Point three, it's not about you. It's about him. You know, a lot more of recent worship songs, while not bad in themselves, have a tendency, I think, to have the wrong focus. There's a lot of I will songs 
or we're going songs. Lots of songs that make us the subject. And you know what? That's not the point. We are not the point. It's not a question of how much we enjoy the meeting, although it's good when we do. It's not a question of how good we feel when we leave church, although that's good. It's not about us experiencing God, but don't get me wrong, it's great to experience God. It's great to feel his presence. It's great to enjoy meetings like we enjoyed last week, isn't it? Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, I didn't get much out of the worship in that meeting. I didn't really enjoy that worship. It just didn't do it for me. Good, it's not supposed to. It's not for you. When we do get something out of it, wonderful. But that's not the point. The point is, is God gets something out of it. Feeling good and enjoying it and feeling like we're touching heaven should always be a product of worship rather than the objective. We do not worship for our benefit. We do it because God loves it. Now you might be here this morning and you don't know God. You may wonder, for the first half of that meeting, what was with all that singing? What was the point in all that? We do it because we want to give God glory. We want to tell him how much we love him. And when we do it all together like that, I really believe there's power in it. We do it because we're thankful and we're excited about him. We're singing to him because it's hard to keep it in. We don't do this out of religious duty. We do it because God's amazing. And this all-powerful creator wants a relationship with you, me, all of us. Can I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, get to know him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he died, that he rose again, and that you can trust him as your Lord. When you pass that bridge, it's not hard to sing. The point is, we worship God because he's worth it. He loves it. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the praise. Let me give you an example. Guys, you should relate to this. When your wife comes up to you, gives you a hug, and says, you are amazing. Doesn't that feel good? Feels wonderful. Girls, when your husband comes home, gives you a hug and says, I think you're fantastic. In fact, you are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. We do do this, guys, don't we? When you do this, doesn't it feel good? It's exactly how God feels. When we do it, it feels good. But let me tell you, when your wife comes up and does that, and you think, she doesn't mean this, That doesn't feel so good. When we sing to God, we mean it. It's only worth hearing if you know she means it. I'm sorry. Amelia's not in here, is she? (laughs) Um, When God seeks you out, will he find a true worshiper? Someone who worships in spirit and in truth? Or those who try and force their flesh because the spirit's somewhere else. Will he find those who worship in truth? Or will he find those who sing one thing and then walk outside and do something else? My prayer is that when God looks at my worship, it pleases him.
that it ministers to him. That it's like sweet-smelling incense to him.